You are listening to Heart Sounds from the Pulse of Cardiology. Hello, I'm Shelley Wood, the Managing Editor at TCTMD. Welcome to the first podcast of 2017, where the winds of change are blowing. This is especially true in the U.S., where a new and polarizing president has been sworn in with plans to shake up healthcare as well as regulatory decision-making. Earlier this month, we learned that Rob Califf was on his way out as FDA commissioner after just 10 months on the job. That's got to be a blow to a lot of cardiologists and academic physicians who were excited to see one of their own in this post. We've also seen some wildly diverse reactions to Trump's plans to repeal and replace Obamacare. I'm not going to lie, all of the political theatre playing out in the U.S. has made the coverage of cardiology pale somewhat in comparison to the work being done by reporters on other news beats, but all of us here at TCTMD have been soldiering on. Let's take a look at some of the stories we wrote to shake things up on TCTMD this month. I've been working as a medical journalist long enough to know that, barring a few surprises, January is a pretty slow month for medical news. This gave my team the chance to look into a few softer topics that I think also fall under the wind of change theme for this podcast. That's because January, for many people, is a time to make some changes for the sake of their health and well-being. Happily for us, many commonly made New Year's resolutions are also things for which the evidence base is always shifting or, in some cases, easily ignored. I myself opted to look at alcohol and the heart. Full disclosure, I love wine, I love beer, I love a nice tart whiskey sour, so any study investigating the link between alcohol, health, and disease always catches my eye. My suspicion for some time has been that the general public, and even physicians themselves, have clung to the good news story that alcohol in moderation is good for your heart. What I learned putting together the first of our New Year's resolution stories is that while observational evidence still stands linking moderate alcohol intake and lower risk for coronary heart disease, an equally important body of research supports a causal role for alcohol in increasing the risk of other forms of heart disease, particularly atrial fibrillation. Indeed, in a recent review, Peter Kistler and colleagues found that starting even at so-called moderate levels, alcohol increases the risk of atrial fib roughly 8% with every additional standard drink. Here's part of my conversation with Kistler. I think we know about the benefits of alcohol from a cardiologist's perspective, but what we're not sure about is how to implement that at a, at a public health level with the potential issues of people not confining themselves to the one to two standard drinks and the, and the social implications of, of that. So I think that's where we, we kind of struggle to implement the message. I suppose broadly speaking, we know that alcohol at that one to two standard drinks in men and one standard drink in women has proven benefits in reducing the incidence of heart attacks, reducing the incidence of, of, uh, of cardiovascular mortality and even reductions in total mortality and stroke. But it's a J-shaped curve. So as we go beyond that four to five standard drinks per day, then it becomes dangerous. So I think that, that we, we kind of struggle with implementing that um, moderation uh, message. Eat better, get fitter. Most people I know mumbled something along these lines on January 1st. But the next story in our Be It Resolve series looked at these two factors in secondary prevention, where meaningful changes can actually have a profound impact on the likelihood of another, potentially devastating, cardiac event. As TCTMD reporter Michael Reardon reminds us in his story, 750,000 Americans will have an MI this year, and more than 200,000 of these are repeat events. Enter cardiac rehab. 
Everyone would probably agree that many patients discharged from hospital really do need advice and some kind of structure as to how they can eat better, lose weight, and keep active. Yet only one in five patients are actually referred and enrolled in structured programs. Couple that with the fact that patients these days really aren't in hospital long enough to really receive or absorb this kind of advice, and that's a real problem. Here's Gary Bellotti explaining some of this to Mike. The inpatient stays are so short now mm -hmm. that uh, by the time the patient recovers from their heart attack or their valve surgery, they're just about ready to go. Right. Usually it's very fast. It's a matter of days. It's not like when I began my training you know, somewhere around 30 years ago when we had people stay in the hospital for two weeks after some kind of an event. Right. Now they're in and out in a couple of days. Some of the myocardial infarction patients, if they're pretty low risk, might be out within 24 to 48 hours. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Wow. So there's almost no time for that inpatient teaching to go on. Right. By the time somebody's up and walking, they're out. Mm -hmm. And then it's really up to... And does cardiac rehab even make that much of a difference? According to the AHA, studies ranging from 1 to 15 years follow-up suggest that cardiac rehab can reduce the risk of all-cause mortality anywhere from 15 to 45 percent. Participation in a rehab program can also slash the risk of cardiovascular mortality and hospital readmissions while improving medication adherence, blood pressure, and cholesterol levels. For our third story in the Be It Resolved series, TCTMD reporter Yael Maxwell was tasked with researching stress and the heart. Here we really wanted to look at acute stress, and in particular, Takotsubo cardiomyopathy, or as it's sometimes called in the lay press, broken heart syndrome. As she learned talking to a number of experts for her feature, this syndrome is truly something that cardiologists are aware of, in theory, but are not necessarily looking for clinically. There currently are no randomized trial data to help clinicians diagnose and treat patients with Takotsubo. Elmir Omarovic, who spoke with Yael, acknowledged that before he became interested in this topic, it was common for his team to misdiagnose Takotsubo as acute MI, myocarditis, or heart failure. His group is now starting a study using data from the Swede Heart Registry, which is tracking the incidence of the syndrome across Sweden. One barrier to better diagnostics, of course, may be due to the fact that cardiologists have a hard time thinking of something so nebulous and subjective as stress as something that could directly impact the heart on a physiological level. Have a listen to Deepak Bhatt explaining how this might work to Yale. Well, interventionalists aren't big on mind-body connections, actually. So, uh, you know, it's uh, uh, probably the audience that you're uh, writing to is not so... Uh, excited or tuned about those type of issues, but they're real. They're out there. They're sometimes fuzzy and hard to characterize. Um, and uh, you know, I think in this case, eventually, um, you know, there, there will be greater insights than what I'm able to provide right now. That is, I do think there probably are triggers like emotion or physical stress that trigger neurotransmitter release. Um, you know, that has effect on the myocardium in it. You know, it might be things as simple as catecholamines, epinephrine, that sort of thing, norepinephrine, or more um, sophisticated sort of neurotransmitter and biochemical pathways that we don't have uh, elucidated at this point in time. And that will actually take, you know, a fair amount of research to sort out. In our fourth and final story, TCTMD's Caitlin Cox looked at e-cigarettes 
This is another area where we had a sneaking suspicion that opinions about the safety of vaping or the use of e-cigarettes to help wean people off tobacco might not necessarily be reflected in the published literature. Sure enough, research who have looked into these issues say that while e-cigarettes may be less harmful than smoking tobacco, they are not harmless. For one thing, they still contain nicotine, as well as a lot of other substances, including formaldehyde, plus a lot of other ugly-looking words that I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce on this podcast. Last fall, a Cochrane review tried to take a systematic look at e-cigarettes, but only three of the 24 studies were actually randomized controlled trials. One showed that people using e-cigarettes with nicotine were more likely to abstain for at least six months compared with those who received placebo e-cigarettes without nicotine. The other pitted e-cigarettes against nicotine patches and saw no difference in abstinence rates at six months. On the other side, there's also the question of whether normalizing the use of e-cigarettes might have larger public health implications by encouraging people, especially teens and young adults, to take up smoking. A recent warning issued by the U.S. Surgeon General noted that more than one quarter of students in grades 6 through 12 have tried e-cigarettes. Caitlin put the question to Douglas Joranby, do e-cigarettes help or harm? What seems to happen is a lot of people will get an e-cigarette with the idea that this will help them quit smoking. And what in actual reality happens is they reduce their cigarette smoking, um, but they don't quit completely. So then they're still being exposed to some degree of hazard from smoking and some degree of of whatever risk e-cigarettes may present. So if you're a strong harm reductionist, you would say, well, you know, they're reducing their exposure to combustible tobacco, and that's a good thing uh, because some of the effects, like particularly cardiovascular effects, do seem to be dose-dependent. Hmm. You know, so if you're smoking 10 cigarettes a day, you're not at as high a risk as if you're smoking a pack a day. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, if you look at dual users as, you know, people who had a good chance of quitting tobacco entirely if they had used an effective evidence-based treatment, then that's, that's kind of a net public health loss. Of course, many other stories on TCTMD in January 2017 looked at new ways of thinking about existing problems. I'll highlight just a few that I think fall under our Winds of Change theme. One of these was a feature story by Todd Neal that explored the evolution of pulmonary embolism response teams, or PERTs. As Todd discovered, PERTs are springing up all around the U.S., although their impact as yet remains unclear. The idea is to provide a rapid coordinated response to an acute PE similar to the way hospitals respond to MI and stroke. At Mass General, where physicians are credited with coining the term and the concept, the PERT is made up of 40 different specialists who are alerted when an acute PE comes through the door. Available members then connect by video conference to review test results, discuss the case, and select the best treatment approach. There is huge excitement and momentum behind the PERT movement, people told Todd. After all, acute PE is the third biggest cause of cardiovascular mortality. Much, however, is still unknown, including the cost and impact of this approach. The fact is, the pathology of acute PE is very different than a cardiovascular or cerebrovascular event. Here's Jay Geary, who helped set up the initial PERT at Mass General when he was a fellow. Now, PE is different because it's not like the lung is sitting there infarcting on you. One criticism of PERT is that the pathophysiology here is not exactly the same, and this need to treat every PE like it's, a, uh, like it's an MI or like it's a stroke is overall going to be shown to be not necessarily appropriate. 
the pushback back from PE response teams is, well, the way that PE response teams can be designed is to not treat every PE the same. It's not like every PE is going to be treated absolutely emergently with a bunch of people at the bedside and somebody being rushed for a procedure. But if you have this structure in place, when the patients are really and need these advanced therapies, they can be rapidly mobilized. The second big argument, I think, which is actually even more important than that one, is one that might, might be running around the back of your mind, but one that I think just has to be said out loud, and that's that are these PE teams, like you said, really improving, are going to improve care? I mean, they have this promise of maybe decreasing variability in care and mobilizing docs who are interested, but are they really going to do that, or are they really just serving as a way to uh, honestly increase business um, of and procedural volume? Um, naturally, um, proceduralists, uh, especially interventional cardiologists around the country, seem to be driving a lot of these per in some in some places, interventional radiologists, but it's kind of a mix of these two fields that tend to be heavily, heavily involved. Reporter Michael O'Riordan tackled a different idea for changing things up. This one a protocol developed by physicians at the Christ Hospital in Cincinnati, who wanted to do a better job of managing atrioventricular block and pacemaker implantation after TAVR. There are a number of novel ideas that this protocol explores, but the most important is its emphasis on the use of temporary pacemakers in almost every patient leaving the operating room. The temporary pacer would stay in place at least until the next day, with the decision to remove it dependent upon a review of telemetry and the 12-lead ECG. Mike spoke with the people who came up with this conservative approach, who say that while they haven't formally tested it, the point is to really get people talking about what best practices should be. Ideally, these kind of conversations could lead to some standardization around how to manage conduction disturbances post-TAVR. Of course, we also covered a number of small exploratory studies, none of which will lead to seismic changes, but nevertheless speak to the ways in which small shifts in practice may have a larger impact. Laura McEwen, for example, wrote a story about a small study out of Italy where investigators fashioned a pelvic drape out of a lower body x-ray curtain to see if this could help cut down on operator radiation exposure during radial procedures. To learn what they found, I'll let you search drape on TCTMD to find Laura's interesting story. Okay, I think that's enough talk of change for one month. That said, if you're working on something that you think will really shake up the practice of cardiology, tell us about it. Maybe you'll end up on this podcast. Looking ahead to February, the TCTMD news team will have reporters on the ground at the ICIT, CRT, and International Stroke Congress. If you'll be there too, let us know what you're up to, or point us towards the cool stuff you find in the program. We couldn't bring you the news on TCTMD if many of you weren't out there trying to find new ways of doing things or proving that the old ways still can't be beat. You can contact me and the rest of the TCTMD reporters via email, which you'll find on our website. You can also find us on Twitter. Thanks for tuning in to Heart Sounds. I'll be back next month.